I, I kind of want to defend myself in saying, oh, but that person did that, but I'm, I'm being just like her by saying, uh, by saying that, you know? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. What do you mean that that person did that? I don't um, understand. Like, say, what if, like, say you wanted to serve the Lord by um, helping someone out. <laughs> and then, um, you know, and your intention is to help that person out because the Lord had moved you to help that person out. Uh, then along in the process, you get hurt by that person mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Um, those kind of things distract you. I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. So I'm like, the Lord led me. Why did this, why did that person do that to me kind of deal? Okay. Would, would that right be there with you? Would that be <laughs> same thing happened? Would that, that be, be similar to what um, what Martha is encompassing? Well, it'd be closer to Martha than Mary. Yeah. Um, I don't. Well, what do you guys think? Anybody want to make a comment on that? The question. Mark, <laughs> what's that face? Uh, um. I guess I'm not quite following the uh, the parallel there. I see. I I agree. It'd be obviously he's saying it's bad, so it has to be Martha closer. But I'm not sure exactly how it would. Yeah, I I think that's a different motivation behind her frustration with the Lord or whatever it may be. Unless you're saying, hey, I'm helping this person out. Why isn't anybody else helping him out? Then it would fit. Or why is she not responding properly? And treat me this way, you know, I'm not going to help anymore. Yeah, yeah that, well, that kind of thing. I mean, it's certainly different than the specifics of Martha, but... So, of late, that has been kind of a challenge for you. Yeah, I would say in my former church, that was like the biggest question that I had. Like, uh, how come things aren't changing? Mm. Okay. So how do you deal with that when you want to be serving, and yet people hurt you that you're trying to serve, and, um, you know, the temptation is to say, you know, well, I'm done serving anybody. You know, and that way I protect myself. Wait, to see yourself, that you're not serving them. Mm -hmm. You're serving the Lord by serving them. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't hurt you. <laughs> and you just have to remind yourself of that once, and you're good, right? <laughs> well, I think it's just a good <laughs> Jim. It's just a continued thing. I think you just that's that's I think why it's so important to sort of put on the armor of God and mm -hmm. um, and you know because I think that just helps you you know get through that. I mean, remind uh, the first thing that comes to me is when Jesus says they had not rejected you, they rejected me. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's keeps sending you into battle, and He keeps basically sort of you know giving you that um, you know what you need with the Word. And morning. That's, I know that that's when I'm being faithful and yeah. doing that time, it really helps me through the day. And when I'm having those stretches when I'm not, I find myself getting really discouraged. Yeah. But is there a place where you draw the line? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, because I think, you know, the common response is you got to guard yourself, you got to protect yourself, you know, you can't um, keep being a doormat, that sort of thing. And I agree with that, and I also wonder how much you're helping the other person by letting them treat you and others as a doormat. Um, that being said, you know, how many times have we told to turn the other cheek? You know, just a couple times and then you're good. Four hundred ninety. Yeah, until you lose count, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think more of the thing is, I'm. it's not so much, I'm not going to let myself get hurt anymore, I'm going to protect myself. But I think rather it, you begin to look at it, because there are times where I think you say, no, we're done, we're stopping there. More so for the benefit of that particular person, that they might grow. Like, so sometimes parents will, you know, have to make a difficult decision with a child that is older, hmm. not following the family rules. And then the kid will sue the parents to make them pay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, you know, but you know, they're not following the family rules. Kids, twenty-three or whatever, and, and so you say, you know what? 
it's time for you to get your own apartment or something like that, and, and you move in that difficult direction of cutting them off, that's more to benefit the kid, I think, than it is, it should be just for the hassle of things. There was, uh, you might remember, Andre Sue wrote uh, an article at one point, and she was talking about, I think it was Andre Sue, uh, one of the world writers, um, was talking about the idea of beggars that approach you on the street, you know, the idea of giving to whoever asks. Mm -hmm. And she was conflicted about that until mm -hmm. one of her friends told her that she wished that people wouldn't do that because this friend was involved in a, a rescue mission and she said by doing that it keeps them from coming into us and getting the help they need. So it's pretty much parallels, I think, what you were talking about in terms of uh, it's not helping them. And those are hard judgments to make. Absolutely. And I don't think they're necessarily judgments you make I make it in this room, and I that this is what I'll follow for the rest of my days. I think it's, you know, prayerfully led by the Lord yeah. in those instances. Yeah. All right. Anybody else? Mary, Martha. No yes. time. What are you, sir? Are you married? No, no. So I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift <laughs> oh, a little okay, bit. Okay, we're going new drive. Right. I, I mean, didn't like my question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I I was thinking about this when you said, you know, whole whole organizations, I assume you meant churches, have to think about this so that they don't get so caught up in serving that they lose, you know, the focus on mm -hmm. the Lord and having that. And just what what always comes to my mind when I read this, and especially those verses, I mean, I hear the Martha, Martha, the NIV translates it, you're covered about with many things, but only one thing is needful, right, which is relationship and fellowship with God. So that comes to my mind, especially in the context of what we do on Sunday morning, like our worship, that our church is pretty good that we keep it simple. But so many churches go to such extravagant lengths. You know, it's a whole show. It's, you know, paid musicians and, you know, a big gala, da-da-da-da. To me, it's just like... You don't get paid? <laughs> well, okay. well my, the checks have been bouncing lately, but... Um, but they have such a big show, and then you're like, but they're really lacking what people are coming to do, which is meet with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying people don't. They're probably individual people, but it seems like they just put all this stuff in the way of, so you're cumbered about with many things, and I'm sure that big production takes a lot of work, but only one thing is needful. What are you doing to, to foster mm. you know, that, that worship time? Mm. A pastor... Uh, the church I used to go to, and for the first pastor was there, he made a comment one time, I, I remember he, he said something kind of stuck with me, he said, we have to be careful that we don't worship the worship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. And I guess the parallel was like, you know, going to India or going to, to Africa just recently, it was pretty, pretty sparse, you know, the worship was like, but it was exuberant, it was joyful, it was, yeah. 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 You know, I remember some particularly work trips that we go on as a church, mm -hmm. like New Orleans or something, and you know, you, you go with great intentions, we're going to have a quiet time in the morning, and then we'll have one before bed in the evening, and then, you know, okay, well, on Tuesday, though, we we got to get started at 6 because the, the spackle has to dry and, you know, this and that, and, and the next thing you know, you're... You're doing six days of 14 hours, and then you come home, eat, and go to bed. And, you know, suddenly you're like, so one of our trips, I recall, that was happening, and, and one of the guys on the trip said, uh, and I was having my quiet times by myself, you know, mm. I would take time. Um, but one of the guys on the trip said, uh, you think maybe we could, like, gather together as a group <laughs> or something? And, that's a good idea. Oh, this is the work trip. <laughs> That's right. um, you know, so how easy. And, and so if I answered that question, which are you of late, what I find is this, that I, I begin my day typically as a Mary or my week as a Mary and just very quickly fall into being a Martha. It's just a circumstance here or there uh, in which uh, the running... I allow it to get to me, and then I become uh, 
you know, smile still on the face, but you know, in my heart is that wrestling and all the joy of the process of serving uh, is gone. You know, and I'm rebuking the Lord. I can't believe you. You know, why won't you? And you know, all these sorts of things. So, I I say that because we need to guard ourselves. How easily we can drift, you know, away from that which is the most important, and that's relationship. And I guess it doesn't have to be a Mary to, to be a Martha. It doesn't have to be a Mary to, for you to be a Martha. That's what I guess I was getting at. Is you can be cumbered about with things that have nothing yeah. to do with other people. Like not I said, Mary's everything. not the problem. Yeah. Martha's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> Martha has a problem with Martha. So, very, very good. All right, any other thoughts on that before we move on to chapter 11? All right, let's go on then. Um, Hey, like that wait time. Two seconds. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, let's read the first four verses. Now, verses 1 through 13 are going to deal with the question of prayer. Um, question that's raised by the disciples. They observe Jesus, they watch him, and so they say, hey, can you teach us to pray like, like you do? You're, uh, teach us to pray. So, Verses 1 through 4, Jesus will uh, he'll answer that question, commonly what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and then verses 5 through 13, he'll give them a couple of, I'm not sure these are actual parables or not, but he'll give them a couple of different scenarios to teach them about prayer as well. All right, So let's just read the first four verses. We'll see how far we get. <coughs> it says this, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, the Lord's Prayer is what we call the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father is what we commonly call it. Um, some have said, you know, the real Lord's Prayer is John 17. That's where the Lord is crying out to the Father in prayer. Um, this is more like the disciples' prayer, because he taught the disciples to pray um, this. Uh, but either way, we all know what we're talking about. Um, if you read Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, you pretty much have the same prayer, though it's not exact. Um, you know, some of the words that were more common that we, we memorize a little more. If you come from more of a high church background, Catholic church, a Presbyterian Lutheran type of church, um, no doubt you learned the Lord's Prayer and said it every Sunday in your services and things like that. Um, and so those words that you're a little more familiar with, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven, they're a little more closer to the Matthew passage than here, uh, the Luke one. Where was that in Matthew? Uh, 6, 9 to 13, I believe it is. Uh, oh, yeah. got to skim up my notes. But, um, so let's go back and look at this one. Uh, verse 1 says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. There are 15 instances in the Gospels where we read that Jesus was praying. Um, 11 of those are recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so, that's somewhat significant, particularly because Luke's purpose, as we know, was to portray Jesus' humanity. So, God in the flesh, and really Luke, this doctor, takes it upon himself to portray Jesus' humanity. So, he talks about how Jesus was hungry. He talks about uh, specific medicine and things like that, or, excuse me, the specific disease that Jesus would heal, and, and so on and so forth. So, we see a lot more with Jesus' humanity in the book of Luke, uh, and he references Jesus praying... 11 times. So here's Jesus, fully God, and yet his earthly life is evidenced by a need and a desire to pray. And so if Jesus, fully God, needs to pray, then certainly you and I, we need to pray. Um, and I don't know about you, but I know a lot about praying and that I should be praying and all these things. And yet I don't pray as much as I know and should. Uh, and I, I think it's a common problem for all of us. We can read all sorts of books on praying. What we need to do is pray. Uh, and so uh, Jesus demonstrates that. Um, we read in the scripture that he would go to the mountain to pray. 
Other times we read he went out into the wilderness, which is like a desert, to pray. Sometimes we read he gets up really early in the morning before everybody else is awake to pray. Other times we read he stayed up all night and then he prayed. So Jesus takes the time to get away in solitude and pray. Uh, so this particular time he's doing that, he's praying in a certain place, and it seems that his disciples take notice of it. it in my mind, I imagine they begin to talk about it uh, privately, back away from him, they give him his space, but they begin to talk and they say, we don't pray like he prays, you know, I wish we did. you think he would teach us if we asked him or whatever? So there it is, they're having this conversation, I suspect Peter was the one who asked, but you never know. Um, but it says, when he was finished, uh, they went to him. So they, they gather near enough, they watch him pray, but they give him his space. And there's something about Jesus' prayer life that attracts the disciples. And that makes them ask, can you teach us to do that as well? There was something that as they watched him pray, that made them want to pray like that. And I think that's great. I, I wish that there were aspects of my walk with Christ that people would observe and say, can you teach me to do that as well? I, I think that's really how discipleship relationships should start in the church. It's just people are observing one another, and I notice something in your life and say, hey, could you show me that too? Show me how to pray, show me how to study, show me how to do this, show me how to do that. And so uh, Jesus had this, if you will, magnetic prayer life, and it attracted them. I wonder, in your life, do you have, is there an aspect of your life that is magnetic toward others? That they're observing your life, your walk, your relationship, the way you pray, the way you serve, the way you teach, the way you do this, do that, that is drawing people to Christ? I hope so. And I'd encourage you. Let the Lord, you don't have to be fake about it, be real about it, and I think that's the most important thing, is that you're real about it, but... People should be observing and being drawn. So they come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, it's very important to notice, they don't say, teach us how to pray, though I do believe some versions uh, will write that in, in italics and things like that. Uh, but rather, they, they say, just teach us to pray. Um, in the first century, and perhaps into today, I don't know, but the, when the Jews particular rabbis and things like that, they would teach specific memorized prayers to their disciples. Um, and each particular rabbi had a different prayer that he might teach um, to his disciples. The Jews knew how to pray. We, they had specific prayers for basically every circumstance or occasion of life. This is the prayer you pray on someone's birthday. This is the prayer you pray when they become a this or that. This is the prayer you pray when someone dies. Pray you pray when someone is born. So they knew how to pray, but that's not what they were asking Jesus. And they weren't asking for some specific uh, prayer to memorize, which is ironic because what have we done with the Lord's Prayer? Yeah. We've memorized it, and I was good at it because that was, we had confession and then recess. And so when you got done the prayers that the priest gave you, you could go out the recess. So I could get ten Our Fathers out pretty quickly. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's what we have done with this particular prayer. Jesus is not model modeling a memorized prayer or a prayer to be memorized, but he's modeling a heart cry. And that's why I think it's significant that what we read in Matthew is different from what we read in Luke. Similar, certainly, because he's not trying to teach us a word-for-word -word prayer that we are to memorize. Uh, but rather he's teaching us a heart cry. And we'll take a look at uh, what that is. Like, um, the guy that, the guy that uh, took me to church where I got saved, he, uh, he was like a German, he was like getting his master's in German. And he, when we would do the Lord's Prayer at our church, he would say it in German because he said, that makes me think about it as opposed to just rattling it off. So I thought that was kind of funny. It's like, yeah, that's really... Yeah, that's what it becomes. Yeah. yeah. Especially 10 in a minute, that's pretty good. Well, I, I think it's quicker than that. I may have blended some words in the process. But anyhow. Um, so just like these disciples are really asking Jesus, how do you get a heart like you have to pray? That's what we need to ask the Lord as well. I like what David Guzik said about prayer. He said, prayer is so simple 
that the smallest child can pray, but it is so great that the mightiest man of God cannot be said to truly have mastered prayer. You know, and, that, and that's the reality. I remember a time when Luke, my son, had to be four, something like that, a uh, little fella, and uh, he was just having a hard time dealing with his siblings, you know, real life <laughs> difficult stuff. And he was just having a hard time, and things frustrated him or whatever, and Robin was teaching him about asking uh, the Holy Spirit uh, to just fill him and if you will, work through him, and, and so on. Uh, and she overhears Luke over by, sitting on the floor, right by the stairs, uh, and he's saying, Lord, fill me up, fill me up, you know, this sort of thing. And that was the simple cry of his heart. That's a little kid who has the idea and understands prayer, and yet we know that it goes so much deeper, too. And as we walk with the Lord and as we learn we grow in this area, and even the mightiest man of God cannot be said to have truly mastered prayer. Um, one other thing I think is of note before we get into the prayer itself is that Jesus' disciples, at least recorded, never come and say, teach us to tell stories like you tell stories, or teach us to preach like you preach, or teach us to heal like you heal, or these things. But here we have the instance, they, they come and they say, teach us to pray. They do come and say, we don't understand why we couldn't deliver this demon and things like that. But here they're specifically saying, we want to pray. There's something about it that is drawing them, magnetic. So, so anyway, verse 2 says, now when you pray. So I think two things. Since it's not the same exact prayer as Matthew 6, uh, I think the first thing we, we see is that it's a pattern of prayer. Uh, and that the words of the prayer are not really what Jesus is trying to convey. Uh, he didn't, doesn't want to give us some ritual, some magic formula or something. So here's what he says to pray. He says to begin by praying, Father. So, Father implies the privilege of relationship that we enjoy as God's children. That we're not mere servants. And you can picture a servant that would come into the room of the grand uh, king, whatever it may be, and come into that particular room and keep, if you will, his head and his eyes down, you know, being in there observing, but certainly not making eye contact, because I'm just a servant. And if somebody explained that that's what prayer was like, because God is so wonderful and great, I could walk away and say, I got it, I understand that. He is great, and I'm a worm, you know, and I, I can't lift my head. But here, we're told that we can call God Father, which implies, I should say, the privilege of relationship, that we're not just mere servants, but that we are, can approach God in the intimacy of a child. Now, think about this significance. Even the great men and women of God in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Isaac, Elijah, they couldn't call God Father in this way, as you and I can. So, the privilege of relationship. So, Jesus is telling his disciples, you come to God in the privilege of relationship, and you call him Father, or Abba. He goes on, he says, hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is a word which means holy, or holy be your name, as some versions have. And it's a word which means, as we've learned, set apart, or you might say altogether different. And by making this statement, what we're saying is, God, there is no one like you. You know, sometimes we, we sort of have this picture of God as being the greatest of all beings, you know, like the, the greatest human out there or something, or that he's above all people, but, you know, just a little or something like that. There, but the reality is that he is altogether different. He's not just some super person, but he's altogether different in character and in motive and in purity and intention. So I'm going to pose a question that I'd like to discuss. In what ways would you say that God is altogether different from man. I'll just throw out answers here. He's creator. That's creator. Mm -hmm. He's um, ultimate power. Yeah. Unconditional love. Absolutely. Sinless. Yeah, without sin. Good. All knowing. Sacred. Mm -hmm. Sacred. Good. 
David said unconditional love, I, I added agape love, which is a love that is at cost to yourself, you know, sacrificial in that way. It is love. That's altogether different from the society in which we live. So we see here that God is hallowed or holy, and in, in making that statement, first we call him Father, the privilege of relationship, then we make that statement that he is altogether different, and it is good for us to come humbly uh, before him. And then he adds here, he says, uh, well, the next phrase is your name. Let me go back and read it in the context. Teach us pray. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be uh, your name. Now, when we think of name, we're not talking about, like, our name, Fred or Greg or Mark or something like that, uh, and his name is God or Yahweh or Jehovah. Uh, but name speaks of the entirety of a person's being. So uh, this is his whole character and his whole person. Leon Morris said this, he said, The name in antiquity, it stood for far more than it does with you and I. It summed up a person's whole character, all that was known or revealed about God. So again, hallowed be your name. Your whole character, going back to the phrase I used earlier, is altogether different from any other being that has ever been and ever existed or ever will exist. And he goes on, he says, Your kingdom come. Now, what do you think is meant when it says your kingdom come? We'll open that up. We when, welcome when your it kingdom. Comes. We will, that we're welcoming it. Yep, certainly so. What did, what did you say, man? When, when it comes. What, think when we come into his kingdom after this life. Okay. Could that be it? All right, well, let me go back to Judy for a second. You said when the kingdom comes. Mm -hmm. So... If you put the sentence together, Our Father, um, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. So are you saying, when his kingdom comes, his name is hallowed? And well, I was putting in more with the second part. When his kingdom comes. Then his will will be done. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Anyone else? So when, when the person is praying, your kingdom come, are they saying, Lord... End this world. Come, set up your throne here on the earth. Could Is be. that the nature of the prayer? You could said be. could be? Could I, be. You have the proximal and distal. The what? You have the, the proximate and the distal. So you've okay. got the, your kingdom come now, in my life, in yeah. our life, and your kingdom come ultimately. Um, and I guess it goes with will, too. Your will be done now, and your will will be done. All right, so let's talk about the uh, distal. Um <laughs> How is your life different if you're living and crying out in an expectant way for God to return and set up his kingdom? Bring it on. Bring it on? <laughs> yeah. I never thought I'd ever hear you say that, Judy. <laughs> okay. I think it, it inclines our hearts to desire it, right? In the sense that if I was so focused on the world, then I certainly wouldn't want necessarily it to come. And so, I don't know. I think it's an easier task to pray for as you get older. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I think so. Yep, I'm with you. I think it's partly that because you know, know that um, an important someone who great significance not just to you but to the world is coming you don't know when they're coming but you prepare your heart your home your place for for when the uh, for when he comes yes because you don't because like it says it says like it's even the night 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 you know you'll not know when he's coming so you want to uh, be prepared it's like when the uh, when the Pope, the past Popes came um, from Rome and, and they flew over um, with his entourage and uh, and then the, the, the host cities that he was visiting and, uh, got their got their stadiums or ready for him and prepared. They just didn't um, 
and say, okay, we'll wait until he comes over, and then if it's a dirty stadium mm. or a facility, we'll, we'll just let him uh, have him uh, in, in uh, Veterans Park, uh, even though it's filthy and. That would be embarrassing the same thing with Well, you know, Paul, I always think of that verse uh, in First John, I think it's chapter 3, and it's, uh, it speaks of whoever has this hope of his return purifies himself even as he is pure. Certainly we're going to live differently if we think he may come back today, uh, and with a different perspective even as well. Um, so... That's the distal. Now there's the proximal. Can I say one more thing about yeah. the distal? Yeah, I mean, I watched the Hunger Games over the weekend. It was on. Okay. I mean, the, the theme there is like oppression by the government. If, if nobody, and, I, and to me, that kind of stirs in me the like, no, God, you got to come back and take care of this because these people are being oppressed and it's yeah. only going to end when you. Okay, so the people are going to rise up eventually, but it's only ultimately going to end when you mm. take out the mm. bad guys and restore and have a just and righteous. Okay. Government. Good. Now let's talk about it from the perspective of uh, not actively, if you will, looking for him coming in the clouds, but the idea being, um, I want your will to be done here on the earth, um, in my life and in my heart and so on. Um, what does that look like and what, what does that signify? Uh, kingdom things like doing the things like Jesus did in terms of uh, living the way Jesus expected us to live or taught us to live like you can say the kingdom is in your heart when you've truly forgiven someone yeah, yeah. those characteristics that Jesus taught okay you want to say something Fred? Well, just to to live in His Word and to, like David was saying, accept Him into your heart and the Kingdom coming. The way I always interpreted that, or the way I I feel it, is that I'm accepting or welcoming the Kingdom here today in all of us. Okay. That phrase, when you walk as Kingdom people, you're just like living as if you know you were in heaven, kind of. Loving people and accepting people, mm. giving to people. Yeah. So, how does a kingdom person, yeah. you know, how do they respond when they're cut off in traffic? Mm. Differently than a uh, non kingdom person. Yeah. You know what I mean? Bless you. Have to be yeah. more specific. <laughs> No, I just think it's um, part of the surrender, part of this, the yeah. you know, submission. You know, your kingdom come, Lord, help me to give up, you know, those things of my kingdom that yeah. I'm hanging on yeah. to. Yeah. You know, and, and give those to you, Lord. Your kingdom come into my heart. Um, fill it. I wrote down a couple of questions that I answered here for myself. Is How might our society look different if Christ reigned? And I said, there would be peace, there would be justice, there would be mercy, there would be grace. There would be the fruit of the Spirit that would be present, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There'd be unhindered fellowship with God. Now, they're all great things. And then I pose another question. Well, how would our lives look differently if Christ reigned? And, and the note that I put was, well, we'd have all of those same things, but on a personal level. So we'd be at peace. We'd be a just person. We'd be extending mercy uh, and so on. Obviously, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and unhindered fellowship. Um, so... In heaven, the will of God is done immediately, and it's done naturally or spontaneously. It's just the way heaven works. Um, There's no rebellion. Yeah. There's no rebellion. There's yeah. no resistance to His will. And it's done with great joy. It's a delight uh, to do it. Yeah. Uh, and our prayer, as we pray, and Your will be done, our prayer is that this world, uh, this would, I should say, become the attitude of our heart. And then ultimately that of the world that is around us. Lord, just change people's heart so that the will of God is everywhere we look happening, uh, done spontaneously and with joy that rebellion uh, is broken down. And what does Michael Jackson say? 
it begins with me or something like that. I think in the mirror. Yeah, he's talking about something else. But uh, the idea, though, is it does begin with us uh, individually, one by one. So the prayer for God's will. Um, now, what is interesting is the next thing that's going to be brought up is give us this day our daily bread. So the first thing, you begin with a prayer for God's will to be done, and that always precedes the list of things. This is the attitude of prayer that Christ is teaching us to pray. Is that typically the order of how we pray? I don't know about you in this room, but most people know. Most people it is, I got a long list here, Lord, so buckle up, you know, because I got to throw a lot of stuff at you here. Now remember, prayer's intention is to bring our hearts and minds and wills into harmony with God's. And when that happens first, many of the things that are on our list our wish list, many of those things just sort of fade away, don't they? Um, because we realize, you know what, though there was nothing sinful about that new boat that I was asking you for, God, um, I realized that that new boat's really not in your will for me. And, you know, because I prayed for the Lord's will in my life, and this thing and that, and your kingdom come, and so on and so forth, and God just began to realize that new boat would pull me away from church on Sundays and it would fill up my weekends so I have no time for other people and, and I'd be just spending on myself and so on and so on and so forth. I hope none of you are thinking about getting a boat. <laughs> this wasn't my intention by bringing up the boat. Um, but the point is there, you know, if I were to say, you know, God help me to be a good bank robber, you know, that's sin, you know what I mean? But there's nothing sinful about having a boat. Um, yet it may not be in God's will for you. And so we seek God's will first, and that sometimes crosses things off of the wish list. Now, we do have needs, and so Jesus said to bring those needs. So he says, give us each day our daily bread. Now, this speaks, I think, first and foremost of the physical, our daily needs for bread or for food. Um, but I think it also can apply to the spiritual feeding that we need to receive each day. It's interesting <laughs> that early theologians in the church... Um, we're pretty much all convinced, this is after the apostolic age, we're pretty much all convinced that this could not mean actual bread. Because something as like mundane and boring as bread, Jesus would never include that in some great prayer like the Lord's Prayer or something like this. Do um, they, they um, ask for, for bread, bread um, when they were in the Exodus? Didn't they ask something for this, Moses, to this effect? And it was manna every manna, day. Yeah, they, had to be they, uh, they were the people complained on the way out, like and mm -hmm. uh, God rained upon them the manna and uh, quail. At one point, yeah. quail. And uh, I forget what else. What else he um, right off the tip of my head. I forget what else he gave them in the in the desert. But didn't they ask for for or he asked <coughs> intervene with God and. And ask them for the daily bread or so. I'm not sure, Paul, where you're going with that. Well, he, they said they wanted food, and it said that he gave them the manna, and he told them they had to get it every day. Mm -hmm. And if they kept Our it overnight, they would get I maggots. See. Yeah. So it was an everyday thing. They had to go out every day, every yeah. morning, and get it. Yeah. They said, gather just what you need. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, if you gather too much, you had didn't have too much, and you gather too little, you didn't have too little. So it meant it multiplied itself. But I think in the first century, I'm pretty sure they probably made their bread like almost every day. It, yeah. They didn't have preservatives, so it would go moldy really pretty quick. Right. So. So I'm saying the people during that time would have understood how oh, daily bread could mean I had to make my loaf of bread every day because I. Right, but eventually people began to think, no, we're more. They spiritualized the thing. Now, John Calvin said this. He called, I love this, because, okay, he said, he called such thinking exceedingly absurd, is what he said, about this idea that it, it can't talk about regular food because God's too important or big for regular food in this prayer. So he thought the idea was dumb. He said, this is regular food, is what it's talking about here, and I agree with him uh, in this case here. Jesus instructs us to come to him in all things by asking for daily bread. It emphasizes a life that is dependent and trusting. You know, if you took everything away 
and said, all right, you get to start anew. You know, what are the first things you're going to need? You're going to need food, you're going to need water, you're going to need shelter and clothing. Please. You know what I mean? Um, you know, then you're going to work in other things like cell phone. Who's kind of things? But, you know, you, you get rid of all that other stuff and you come down to the basic absolute dependence on God. And that's the heart, I think, that Jesus is trying to create in us, is that we become a people that trust Him for the absolute basics of things, obviously for everything else uh, as well. And God cares about everyday things, and He wants us to be dependent on Him for these things, and teach us to sanctify everything unto Him. Because when we realize and we know this is a gift from God, we approach it very, very differently. So, there are no such things as non-spiritual things and spiritual things, uh, important things, not important things. All these things are from Him. It's all His, and He gives it to us that we would use it in a way that would honor Him and please Him. So you're saying that Kelvin, these people were saying, oh, it can't be bread. Kelvin was saying, that's ridiculous. It has to be. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they were being stupid. He was not. Yes. Okay. Maybe it just really means all of your needs. Yeah. Just come to me every day with your needs. I remember, and I, I've said this many times, but, you know, when I was in college and all that and had cars that maybe would get me there or not get me there or whatever, my prayer life was very different, at least, you know, getting into the car, you know, because I honestly needed God to get me there one more time if he could, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, now that I have cars that are somewhat reliable, that's our chief goal now is, you know, Will that car get us reliably there, you know, well, that's why, kind of thing. Um, I don't get into the car and cry out to God to make it work. You know what I mean? Um, we laid hands pretty pretty many times on your old truck. We did. <laughs> I love that car. It's a good truck. It's a good truck. You don't have the pickup truck anymore? No. They all died. I had two of them that died in one 15 years then. We had a little memorial service for it. It was a good, faithful truck. Anyway, let's uh, look at verse 4, and then we'll wrap up. It says, And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, and however it's worded exactly there. Um, Andrew Murray says this, and he wrote a great book called With Christ in the School of Prayer. He said, As bread is the first need of the body, so forgiveness is the first need of the soul. And so here, Jesus is, as we said, he's instructing the disciples uh, about prayer. Um, now, this is not teaching that we won't be forgiven unless we forgive other people in the sense of heaven and hell. Right? So this isn't teaching that necessarily. There's two, two different types of forgiveness that are addressed in the scripture. Um, these names aren't given to them, but we'll give them these names. One is, if you will, judicial forgiveness. And that refers to being forgiven from the penalty of sin or judgment. All right? And we know that the way a person is forgiven from the judgment of sin is by trusting in the work of Christ. Um, here, though, Jesus is speaking about the second of the two types of forgiveness, and it's been called parental. Uh, and this refers to the breakdown of relationship that occurs as a result of sin. So you can think about a child that has done something wrong in the household, and is sent to their room or whatever it may be, and is being disciplined in that particular way. The consequences of their behavior, the punishment, has led to a broken relationship. But that kid's still a child in the family. They just may not be able to attend the family movie night or something, or they're grounded, or whatever it may be, or they go to dinner or go to bed without supper. Is that legal anymore? Do you get in trouble for that? I think you do. And, you know, similarly, you and I, we can experience a separation of relationship with our Heavenly Father each time that we sin and go astray. Um, so to think that we could be restored to relationship with Him when we're harboring a bitter and an unforgiving spirit toward others is just wrong. You, you miss the idea. Remember, Jesus is teaching the heart of what it means to pray. And you can't come in here with all that junk and think you're going to have a sweet relationship here. You've got to deal with those things um, first. So, uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And then finally, lead us not into temptation. Um, 
Now, we know from James chapter 1 that God doesn't, or actually chapter, yeah, chapter 1, verse 13, that God doesn't tempt us with evil. Now, this word here that is used for temptation doesn't necessarily have to be temptation in the sense of evil. It really can be translated testings or trials. And we do know also from James 1 that God uses trials in our lives uh, to grow us and so on. Um, but this doesn't mean that God is going to be the one that is tempting us with evil. But we are still at the same time asking him to lead us not into that temptation. We're instructed to plead to God for strength, to plead to him for wisdom and perseverance, and to be delivered from those situations that are going to tempt us to evil. So here's a question that I wanted to ask. What are ways do you think that God delivers us from temptation? Small groups. Through small groups? Like a... Accountability groups, yeah, that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah fellowship. Yeah, fellowship. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Okay. He speaks to your conscience. Okay. And he speaks sometimes with such a heavy conviction that there's no other way to go. Like, mm-hmm. I just got to follow. And I, and I think many of us have been there. Sometimes it'll change your situation. Mm-hmm. And that's very kind of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that he does that. Well, let me ask you this. Does God always remove, or ever, and it may not be fair, does God remove the temptation from our hearts? Or... Does he remove us from the temptation? Or is it a little of both? I think he removes us from the temptation because um, God wants it to be our choice. Nice whether we give in to this temptation or not. Okay. I think he does, though, change our hearts sometimes. So some of the things that I I find some of the things that used to tempt me don't tempt me anymore. think that as, as, continue to, as we continue to allow him um, to change our hearts, to, you know, we get, as we get convicted about things and come before him and, and in prayer with him and he somehow or another does seem to like suddenly things that tempted you don't tempt you so much anymore. Yeah, and sometimes even a disgust develops mm-hmm. for something that you loved so much before, you just yeah. disgusted yeah. by it later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sometimes that happens. Um, but other times, what the Lord will do, and we read about this in 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says that, uh, that he'll always provide a way of escape, that he's faithful and will always provide a way of escape. And so, you know, we say, lead me not into temptation, and the Lord says, well, there's, there's the door right there. You know, and take it. And so he's delivering us from it if we walk out that particular door. And so we have to make that decision. I think there's, so we learn in First John, there's three sources of that temptation, right? Yes. There's the world, the devil, and the flesh. Correct. So removing us from the, or you said removing the temptation. So some of that happens, I think, I think we can probably all attest that we, we weren't saved. We were, we were doing things in the world. We're going places in the world that were definitely tempting us, bars or whatever. When we got saved, we stopped going there, so that temptation was removed. And then we have the devil, which we obviously have to pray that we don't get, you know, he's probably not personally tempting any of us directly, but his minions or whatever. Sure. <laughs> to let to Job. <laughs> yeah, well, Job had a special special time. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then I think the hardest one is the flesh, right? Because you can't really separate yourself from your sinful man. Mm. Um, but but, getting to but what, you can stop feeding the flesh. And that's what I was going to say, I'm the sorry. analogy that comes up. No, that's okay. That's good. Good, good segue. The, the analogy that comes up is the black dog and the white dog, mm-hmm. right? So depending on which dog you're feeding, it depends on which one's the white dog being good righteousness, the bad dog being your old flesh, your old man. You know, you're going to let one of them's going to bark louder than the other and draw you in. And if you stop feeding one... Mm-hmm. And you only, it's an exclusion. You can't feed both at the same time. Correct. So, Very good. I think it's, what you're getting to is, it's God working in your life so that you can, you can resist the flesh temptation. Yes. 
and get away from it. But I don't think you ever, I mean, some people obviously get, like I used to swear a lot when I was not saved, and now I don't. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, it's... Well, I mean, it's, I still, the thing is, is you substitute other things, picture, right? Yes. So instead of saying, instead of saying, yeah, yeah, or Jiminy Crickets, or yeah, it, man, I know. dough, so I say I dough. <laughs> I know, I know what it means. I, I used to curse a lot myself, but now I hardly ever do. But it's, it's not the, it's, e it's not easy. It's a, right. it's a, it's a whole new mindset. It's you flip the hourglass upside down, and you. But it's the underlying drive of why I cursed. Something didn't work out, so I used to curse, and now I go dough. It's still the, pro <laughs> the problem is with the underlying problem. Yeah, absolutely. About that, right. yeah. You know, and sometimes a particular t this temptation's gone, whatever it may be, and it's not like I've been delivered from all things that tempt me. It's just something else I'm dealing with, and we continue to grow, and God uh, works in us. I think one thing that someone pointed out that I appreciated about this was that this part of the prayer teaches us to have a healthy distrust of our own ability to resist temptation. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, mm -hmm. that we need the Lord mm -hmm. in all of this. You know, and, and one other point that I would make is Joseph in the book of Genesis avoids temptation by doing something that appears to be very foolish. Running away, and costly in that case, running away. I don't know, if you don't know the story, he's being... Uh, pursued by his boss's wife um, to have a relationship with her. And uh, he says, I'm not going to do that. And she keeps grabbing at him and all this sort of stuff. And he eventually just bolts out and runs to protect himself from giving into that sin. Sometimes we need to do that. And there's nothing shameful uh, in doing that. You know, So for some of us, we take the computer and we put it outside of our homes uh, to protect us from going down that particular path, or we quit a particular job to protect us from giving into temptation. Sometimes we need to do some extreme things. Um, so, deliver us from temptation. So, this is a very simple prayer. It's very brief, uh, but it's very powerful, as many of you know, um, to teach us, if you will, the heart and the nature of God. So, uh, we're out of time. But we will uh, we'll pick up in verse 5. We'll continue to talk about how Jesus is teaching us to pray uh, when we come together next time. Okay? Okay. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the good conversation we were able to enjoy. We thank you for the things that you've taught us and are teaching us. And Lord, we do pray, Lord, uh, that your name would be holy uh, in our lives. Father, uh, that we would uh, seek your will in every area, and that it would be done here upon the earth. Lord, we pray you would give us our daily bread and you would teach us to be a people that are dependent on you for the most basic of needs. Lord, that you would deliver us from temptation and that we would uh, distrust our own abilities to walk uh, a life that is pleasing to you and depend upon you to guide and direct us. And when you do, that we would take that way of escape and submit all these things unto you. So, Lord, uh, teach us to pray, uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.